The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Luke, chapter 10. We continue our study of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 25 and making our way to verse 37 today. Luke writes these words. He said, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray together. We're mindful this morning that these are your words, O Lord. They are not mine. I speak only on your behalf this morning. May your words go out, Lord, and penetrate our hearts. May our minds be open to understand it. May our will be directed to want to obey it. May you grant us the strength to follow you in what it teaches. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this journey through Luke's gospel is quite fascinating. We, we find ourselves on a bit of a journey that uh, takes us left, right, up and down. It takes us from the highly theological to the incredibly practical. If you were with us last week, we were diving into the depths of, of doctrine, of doctrine where there's mystery, and we were sort of dipping our toes in the shallow end of a very deep uh, theological piece of, of God's Word. 
And for some, maybe that was a challenge. For others, maybe that was a joy. But the wonderful thing about God's Word, when you teach it, as it comes at you, you move from the the theological to the practical and back and forth, and, and you see it all. And as we move into the verses we have before us this morning, we've moved really distinctly from something that's quite deeply theological into something that is incredibly easy to understand on the surface and very, very practical. There's words and there's images that easily make sense to us. A a story about a man walking down a street, taking a journey that doesn't go exactly as planned. Some questions about what it means to be a neighbor. And I suspect you live somewhere and there are probably people who live near you and you're familiar with the, the whole concept of having neighbors and what neighbors are. There are people who are neighbors to you and people to whom you are neighbors. We all, if you grew up in my generation, learned what a neighbor was from a man by the name of Fred Rogers who taught us all when we tuned into him on the television show what it meant to be a neighbor. He told us every time he came on, he wanted to be our neighbor. And I really liked that man. I wanted to be his neighbor too. The terms are familiar to us. And to some degree, the concept is familiar to us. But the biblical context here does take us in a little different direction. And it moves us, again, from the theological to the practical. And I want to not spend much time in the introduction this morning and just move right toward the text. The context, if you haven't been sort of traveling with us through Luke's gospel, is Jesus has just recently sent out 72 of his disciples, of his followers. He sent them out two by two on a missionary journey into all the region that was around for some period of time that is uh, undisclosed to us. They go out, they follow Christ on the mission field, and they come back celebrating all that Christ did in and through them as they went out and they obeyed him in faith as missionaries for him. They came back rejoicing at the sufficiency of Christ. They came back rejoicing at the faithfulness of Christ who supplied their every need along the way, though they went with nothing. And most recently, in the immediate context, we we found Jesus rejoicing with them as he hears the stories that they tell of the ministry that they did. He rejoices with them. He rejoices with them that the gospel went out in power and people believed. He rejoices with them at the Father's great wisdom in choosing to reveal the gospel to some who are like little children. And the the Father's great wisdom and grace in concealing it from those he calls the wise and the understanding. And right on the heels of that, Luke says, Behold, depending on which translation you have before you, The word may or may not have been translated. I think the New American Standard doesn't translate. It leaves it untranslated. The ESV, if you carry that, says it translates the word behold. And behold is a word when you see in the Bible. It means stop, pay attention. Something's happening here that's sort of out of the ordinary. Something that's unexpected. Something that wasn't planned. You need to stop and look at it and pay attention. What is it that happens? We're told in verse 25 what happens. That a man stood up. And he asks a question. And if you're sort of taking notes this morning and you want a sort of a broad outline of how we're going to approach the text this morning, we're going to just sort of break it up into four pieces because there's four questions that sort of emanate from the text that we're looking at. So we'll just sort of do question one, two, three, and four. That's our outline for this morning. Super creative, I know, but uh, hey, effective. Question number one is the behind the behold. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Now again... 
we're not told a good time factor, but the behold seems to indicate to me that this happens in pretty close proximity to the things that immediately precede it. A lawyer stands up and he, and he seeks to put Jesus to the test and he asks him a question. And the question is a very simple question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we need some context for who this individual is. We're told by Luke that he's a lawyer. Um, I'm not sure what images that word evokes in your mind when you think of a lawyer. Uh, these, these folks in the New Testament uh, were also sometimes called scribes. They were basically Old Testament legal scholars, if you want to just summarize who they are. They were people, they were people who were experts in Old Testament law. They were experts in Jewish religious tradition. They were the Bible scholars. They were the, the theologians, if you will. And we could say that this man is an example here, a perfect, in fact, example, a picture-perfect example of those that Jesus, who Jesus previously described as those who are wise in understanding. He's a scribe. He's a lawyer. And he seeks to put Jesus to the test, is what we're told. The question that he asks is a fantastic question, but it is likely not sincere coming from this particular man because Luke tells us it's a test. For perhaps he was attempting to trick Jesus. Perhaps he was attempting to trap Jesus, uh, which is really always a, a bad idea and turns out poorly. But they never sort of kept the scribes from trying to do this. We've seen these men already a number of times in Luke's Gospels, typically as sidekicks to the Pharisees. Back in chapter 5, a few pages over in your Bible, verse 30, we were told that the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We saw them back in chapter 5, sort of in the background, grumbling at Jesus and his ministry. If you flip a couple pages over to chapter 6, verse 7, we're told the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So these men have been tracking. They've been tracking Jesus. They've been watching. They've been listening. They've been, uh, on occasion, choosing their moment to engage him. But more often than not, sort of watching from the outside, looking for any opportunity for, for, to, to find a way to accuse him, to, to find a way to credibly accuse him of, of some sort of wrongdoing so they can discredit him. He is a threat to them in every way. And by the time we get all the way to chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, in verse 47, we find Luke recording this for us, that he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. This is the heart of the scribes. This is what they're after. So no doubt, this particular man sort of falls in line with the broader group. And so in his attempt to, to sort of trick Jesus or to, uh, to test him in some way, he stands and he asks a question in public. This isn't a, necessarily a rude thing to do. It was sort of a common way of interacting with a public teacher. You stand and ask questions and, and get answers. And so that's what he does. And his question is really uh, particularly interesting because it's a question that's being asked, asked that, that sort of gives the, the public appearance of, of being a very sincere question. When in reality, it's emanating from a very wicked heart with a wicked motive. But you don't necessarily see it from the surface. So he asks the question, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Frankly, that's the most important question that any human being could ever ask and find an answer to. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, what question matters more than that question? What does it take to inherit eternal life? What question is more important than that? I mean, you and I go through life and we think about a lot of things and we ask a lot of questions as we go throughout our day. Some of them are good questions, some of them are stupid questions, but they're questions nonetheless. But what question is more important than that one? What does it take to find eternal life? Nothing matters more than that. Eternal life here is, when when this phrase, inherit eternal life, is equivalent to the phrase, enter the kingdom of God, we see in other places. It's equivalent to being saved. The man is wanting to know, what does it mean to be saved? How does one enter the kingdom of God? How does one gain eternal life? If there is a God, and if he is a holy God, and if he has made people for his glory, and he said to them, be holy as I'm holy, and yet we've rebelled against him and we've lived unholy lives, and if our lives here on earth are are limited and short, and at some point we are going to die, and if, as the Bible says, we have eternal souls that we've been made with eternal souls that are one day going to experience either eternal life or eternal death, then the most important question, if all of that is true, is how in the world do I end up with eternal life and not eternal death? Sadly, in our day, far too few people ponder that question. Far too few people care about that question. Far too few people reflect on that question for one second of their time. Most of the people you know and most of the people I know live oblivious to eternity. They live their lives in in such a way that they are completely consumed with this world and with this life as though that's all there is. They spend all of their times pursuing careers and pursuing promotions, accumulating wealth and managing wealth, raising families and climbing social ladders. All things that pertain to this life alone. They're busy living this life as though this life is the only life there is. But this man understands that this life isn't all that there is. That there is an eternal life. That there is something beyond this life. That there is a way to gain that. And so he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the emphasis of his question and the way that he asks it, based on who he is, is important. He's asking a question about what does it take to earn or to do, what does he have to do in order to sort of earn eternal life? Earning an inheritance is sort of a strange question to begin with. But coming from a Jewish lawyer who's coming out of a background of first century Judaism, which is essentially a works-based religious system that is sort of built off of the idea that one can earn God's favor by obeying the law. That's his context. That's his theological framework. That the way to be made right with God is to obey the law. That if you obey the law, then you'll be made right with God. And certainly seeing himself as a scribe who understood the law better than most, he fancied himself one who obeyed it better than most. 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? He understands that, that something can be done in order to do this, and he believes that it's some sort of uh, good works that need to be done. But what he really is wanting to hone in on here with Jesus is exactly what good works are necessary. There's a lot of good things you could do, but which ones are necessary? Which ones must I do in order to find eternal life? And see, this is the problem with every works-based system of religion. Anybody who, who, who subscribes to some sort of a works-based religion has the same problem at the end of the day. How can you ever know when you've done enough? How do you know at what point you've done enough good works? Unless somebody is sort of living under this delusion that they're perfect and that they have no shortfalls whatsoever, that question is always nagging. How do I know if I've done enough? Did I do one thing too short? Did I get it all right and just miss one thing? How do I know exactly what do I have to do? How much is enough? How can I know when I've done enough? How can I know when I've obeyed enough? That's the question that sort of nags in the back of the mind of men and women who subscribe to any type of a workspace system. And the answer is if that's your context and that's your framework, you can never know if you've done enough. The best you can hope for is that when you die, it all shakes out in the end in your favor. But here, this man is wondering this question, and he wants Jesus to set the boundaries for him. He wants Jesus to sort of hone in on exactly how much is enough. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, typically, the way, the way he phrases it is a little odd, because typically you don't do something to gain an inheritance. An inheritance is normally something that you receive as a gift. Not something that you do something to earn. You simply receive an inheritance for being part of the family. And so the, the, the question he asks here is a little confused at the surface. But he knows what he's getting at. And I want to mention here something. That Jesus' response to this is really particularly in, in sort of intriguing to me. Because we know, based on what Christ says, and because later, and because of what the whole of the New Testament teaches us, that salvation comes to men and women by grace, through faith, not by works. We're told that very explicitly throughout the New Testament. Because that's true, because salvation comes to us by grace, through faith, and not by works, wouldn't you expect Jesus to immediately point that out here? This is a perfect opportunity for him to address that. Maybe he couldn't have teed it up any better for him than with this question that this Jewish lawyer asks him. This is a perfect opportunity for him to say, well, wait a minute, man, there's nothing you can do. You can't earn eternal life. You can't earn this by doing anything. Salvation is a gift to be received by faith. You can't earn it with your good works. The law is Old Testament. We're now living in an age of grace. You're not obligated to live by the law anymore. You just look to me. That's all you do. I don't know that there was ever a more pristine opportunity in what we have recorded of Jesus' life to answer that question that way. But he does not answer that question that way. Instead, what does he do? Instead of turning the man away from the Old Testament law, he in fact points him directly to the Old Testament law. 
by asking question number two. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Go back to the law and look at it. What, do you, what does it say? You're an Old Testament scholar. How do you read what the Old Testament says about the question that you've asked? Instead of giving the man an answer to the question, Jesus answers the question with another question. And he asks the Old Testament scholar what the Old Testament says about it. And it seems that Jesus believes that an answer can be found there to the question. So the man answers him in verse 27. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. But what do you know? It turns out that the Old Testament expert knows the Old Testament. That's pretty good, isn't it? His answer is both correct and it's orthodox. He understands very clearly what the law states. He goes immediately to two very well-known Old Testament texts, and he conflates them together. The first is Deuteronomy chapter 6. I don't know that there's any Old Testament passage that would have been more on the tip of the tongue of a first-century Jewish individual than Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, because they recited it at least twice a day, every single day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The heart being sort of the seat of emotions and desires and affections, the soul referencing more of a consciousness in, in, in your, your whole being, might sort of indicating your, your, your will, your drive, your motivation. What he's saying, what the, the, the text is actually teaching, is love, love the Lord your God with, with all of your being, with everything that constitutes who you are, with all that is you, you love him with that. Your whole self. And then Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where God says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For I am the Lord. So this man in his response takes two very, very clear Old Testament passages that would have been very, very well known. He conflates them in sort of a, a two-part answer. The, he, how do you read the Old Testament? What does it say, Old Testament scholar? What the Old Testament says is that if you want to inherit eternal life, you love God with your whole self and you love your neighbor as yourself. He recognizes that it's about God, but he recognizes that it isn't purely vertical either, that it does involve other people to some degree. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. According to the lawyer, the Old Testament law teaches that this is the way to eternal life. Love God with your whole self. That summarizes the first half of the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes the second half. And incidentally, Jesus would use this same sort of a construct as a summary of the whole Old Testament later. 
And then Jesus' response to his response is even more interesting. He says to him, you've answered correctly. You got it right. Do this and you'll live. Wait, what? Salvation, we know, is by what? It's by grace through faith and not by works. See, if you repeat these things with me, I know you're awake and you're not thinking about lunch or, you know, when I'm going to stop talking or whatever. Salvation, we know, comes by grace through faith and it's not by works. And this man has just given Jesus an answer to the question about what does the Old Testament teach about inheriting eternal life and he's given it to him exclusively in terms of works and Jesus says to him what? No, you got the wrong answer. It's not about works. He says, bingo, you got it right. You got it. Congratulations. You win the the golden cookie award. Go do it and you'll live. And by that, he means eternally. Yeah, you got the right answer. Go do that and you'll live. You want to know how to inherit eternal life? Go do that. Now, the verb tense in Jesus' response here is present. Uh, It's the present active indicative. Indicates continuous action in the present. And so Jesus is saying actually more than what it seems he's saying on the surface. That's what it takes. That's what the Old Testament says. Go knock yourself out. And if you can do that, you'll live. If you can go and live and, and, and love God perfectly with your whole self every day, and you can go and live, love your neighbor as yourself perfectly every single day, you will live forever. Go have fun. You'll have eternal life. Go do it. Did you realize that the Old Testament teaches a way of salvation that can be earned by works? Is that shocking to you? All you have to do is love God perfectly with your whole self every day. All you have to do is love your neighbor perfectly with your whole self every day. If you do that, you'll be perfectly righteous and you'll inherit eternal life. Now, you know there's a bit of facetiousness in what I'm saying to you, right? Because you're good biblical scholars. I trust that about you. You know that that is technically a correct answer that Jesus gives him. But it's practically what? Impossible. Practically impossible. We know that because Romans chapter 3 gives us a little further explanation about how the law functions. Verse 20, where Paul writes... For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. How does the law function in the life of a New Testament person? The law functions the same way it did in an Old Testament person. It shows us where we sin. The law is God's perfect standard of righteousness. And if a man or a woman looks into God's law with honesty and integrity, what he sees is God's standard is here, and my life is way down here somewhere. By looking at the law, what I should see is how far I fall short of it. None of us can 
or ever could perfectly keep the law. The law shows us how sinful we are. It shows us how unholy we are. It shows us how no matter how hard we try to obey it, we never can perfectly obey it. And the result of that and looking at that should be twofold. It should humble us before a holy God and it should drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the perfect Son of God, who fulfilled the law and obeyed it perfectly, and whose righteousness is an actual perfect righteousness unlike our own. That's what the law should do. And this answer puts this lawyer in a terrible bind. Because if he had an ounce of humility about him, he would immediately see what we just talked about, and he would fall before Jesus saying, I can't do that. There's no way. I'm already way too far lost, even if I started today. If he had any sense of humility about him, he would, he would admit he has not done this all of his life, and he will not do it in the future. But instead, what does he do? He continues to dialogue by asking a further question. This is question number three. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now the questions start to get a little more absurd at this point, don't they? Who is my neighbor? Instead of humbling himself, he, Jesus' question sort of puts him on the, on the defensive he doesn't abandon his works-based approach. He doesn't concede that he can never measure up. He just continues to start looking for a loophole. Instead of humbling his own self, he seeks to justify himself. Instead of dying to himself, taking up his cross, and following Jesus, he tries to justify himself and justify his works and justify his religious performance. He tries to show, hey, I can live up to this standard. But in order to be sure about that, I need an answer to a question. Exactly who is my neighbor? Again, here is a loaded question coming from a lawyer. Shocked, aren't you? Sorry if we have any lawyers in the room. This is a, an issue that had been debated hotly by religious scholars for quite some time. And the answer to the question, even within Judaism over history, had been sort of understood in various ways. As a religious scholar, this man is very, very familiar with the historical religious debate behind this question, how do we define who is my neighbor? So he's seeking to draw Jesus into this, this debate, having him weigh in on it. And although there were varying opinions, most first century Jews agreed upon at least one thing, that the definition of neighbor only included other Jews. It didn't include people outside of Judaism. They'd already concluded, at least by consensus, that much. How tight the circle of a definition of neighbor depended on who was making the argument. But if you were to ask in a survey all first century, first century Jews, they would tell you it's only Jews that are in the circle. It doesn't include Gentiles. It doesn't include anyone else. So you see what the scribe is actually doing. He knows deep down that he can't possibly obey perfectly this, this instruction, this law to love your neighbor as yourself. 
if, if it's a, a broad definition of neighbor. But he's thinking maybe we can work with the definition and narrow it down a little bit. If we can narrow the scope of who's a neighbor, I've got a better chance of being able to actually do it. If we can shrink the circle of who's included, I might have a chance. And you know, to some degree, that we all deal with God in that way, don't we? And certainly the world around us deals with God like that all the time. We see God's bar of righteousness being set this high, and when we see the height at which he establishes his standards for righteousness, we have really two choices when we observe that. We can either seek to raise our behavior to the level of the standard, or we can seek to lower the standard to the level of our behavior. And it's no surprise that the world around us quite frequently seems to have the lowering the bar for righteousness on the fast track down daily. And that's precisely what this man is attempting to do. If the definition is too wide, he has no shot. But if he can at least get Jesus to sort of narrow the definition of neighbor, then perhaps he can live up to it. And he can say, well, that's what I'll do. I can do that and I can gain eternal life. Incidentally, he doesn't ask any questions about loving God perfectly with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He apparently seems to think he's got that one in the bag. But Jesus, in his great wisdom, does not take the bait, does he? He doesn't get into a legal debate with an Old Testament scholar. He responds to his question, not with another question, but by telling a story. A good story. One of the most well-known stories in all of the New Testament. Incidentally, though, it's only included here in Luke's Gospel. But it's a familiar story. And it's an easy story on the surface to understand. And it's a story that's devastating to this lawyer and what he's trying to do. Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that's a such a a mundane statement to anybody in the first century. People did that daily, all the time. Made a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 miles. A treacherous, sort of notoriously dangerous trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem sits up on a mountain about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho sits down low about 800 feet below sea level. So in 17 miles, you're descending by about 3,000, 3,200 feet. And it's a long and windy sort of a journey. Along the, along the, the way, there's, there's some desert. There's lots of rocks and boulders and caves and things. Plenty of places for thieves to hide out and to wait for some unsuspecting passerby to jump out and rob. And so Jesus gives a story. It's a simple man. He doesn't tell us anything about him. He's on a journey. We don't know his identity. We don't know anything about him. It's intentionally kept vague because it doesn't matter who he is. That actually is quite important to the story. And we're told that he fell among robbers. Well, what had happened to many others traveling that road happens to this particular man. He's traveling apparently alone on the road. He's concerned about being robbed, and that's exactly what took place. He's ambushed by thieves. Now, you and I don't travel the road from Jericho to Jerusalem or Jerusalem to Jericho. But you know what it's like to go about the mundane things of life and have something awful happen. I mean, if you're paying attention to the news, I think it was a NASCAR driver. I'm not big in racing, but there was a racer 
that I just read an article last night about was at a gas station in California and somebody stabbed him to death. Just getting gas. He was ambushed. Killed. Well, that's what happens to this man along the lines. He doesn't die, but he's ambushed. And we're told that those who ambush him strip him and they beat him and they leave him half dead on the side of the road. It's, a, it's an attack that's absolutely brutal and humiliating. They strip the man completely naked and they beat him within an inch of his life and they leave him in a, in a bloody pile on the side of the road. They leave him there to die. I mean, it's a terrible situation. It's an awful, horrendous thing. And Jesus has set up the story. And he says, by chance... A priest was going down that road. Just by It just so happens that on the same day when this took place, a priest is walking down the same road, presumably going from Jerusalem also down to Jericho. Priests were the, the, the religious leaders who operated the temple, conducted worship in the temple. They were responsible for all the sacrifices. They were well regarded by the people. They were held in very, very high esteem. They were, they were seen as fine, upstanding religious leaders, very godly men, the type of people you would expect to help somebody in need. And in this story, it just so happens that a person like this happens upon the scene. He's going down the road, so it indicates he's coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho, which would likely indicate that being a priest, he's on his way to somewhere from church likely where he's conducted worship. Like, if you are in this condition, that's like the best case scenario, right? You've been attacked by thieves and you're left in a bloody pile on the side of the road. Like, the best case scenario is the, the local pastor comes driving down the street, right? Like, if anybody's going to pull over and help you, it's got to be that guy. And as you're listening to the story when Jesus told it, you'd be thinking, oh man, what a lucky guy. A priest comes by. Exactly what you would expect him to be. Godly, trustworthy, merciful. Not this priest. He saw him and he passed by on the other side. What? That's shocking, isn't it? The priest walks up on the scene. He sees this man in a bloody pile, dying naked on the side of the road, completely vulnerable, completely exposed. And he ignores him. He doesn't even cross the street to, 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 to see what the situation is. He stays on the other side of the road and he keeps on going. He just puts the pedal to the metal on the donkey and he rides. He minds his own business and he leaves the man there to die. That's shocking. Now, there's just a little aside. As you read commentaries uh, when you're studying to teach, um, you find interesting things. And one of the things that I found, several commentators uh, tried to make excuses for the priest. And they would say, well, you know, here's probably what he's thinking. He's probably thinking things like this. He, he, you know, it was against the law for, for, for uh, priests to touch dead bodies. They would become sort of unclean. And he doesn't want to disobey God's instruction not to touch the dead. So he's probably thinking, you know, he needs to just keep moving on. It honestly seems to be so ridiculous to me. 
on a couple of levels. Number one, I can tell you exactly what this priest was thinking. I know what he was thinking. What he was thinking was absolutely nothing. He wasn't thinking anything at all. Do you know how I know that? Because he isn't real. He's a made-up person. And made-up people can't think. Unless the author ascribes motives, he isn't thinking anything. He's just there, and he's going, and he sees, and he goes on by. No idea what he's thinking. He isn't thinking anything. He's not real. He's an illustration. And the plain fact of the illustration is this priest, who was a godly man, or seen as a godly man and a holy man, a man who is well-respected as being close to God, ignores a dying man on the side of the road and goes about his own business. Jesus makes no attempt to vindicate him based on religious motives. In fact, it doesn't even matter why he did it. It's just the fact that he did it that matters and is revealing. Well, Jesus says, the, the story isn't over. A Levite comes. Well, the Levite is also a descendant of Levi, like the priest. He's also someone who works in the temple, just not quite to the level of the priest. So maybe you could, if you want to translate this into modern day, the first guy coming down the street is the lead pastor. The next guy coming down the street is the associate pastor. Like the priest, he's a well-respected religious leader. You know, surely the lead pastor is a real bum, but the associate pastor is a great guy. Everybody loves him. He's the godly one, definitely. He, I mean, the, the lead pastor, that guy's just not, you know, he's, gonna, he's busy, you know. But the, not the associate pastor. He's going to stop for sure. Nope. Associate pastor saw him and passed by on the other side of the road. Just like the priest. He keeps on rolling. He ignores the man. He doesn't cross the street. He doesn't do anything. He just goes on about his business, leaves the man there to die. And you're following the story and you're going, oh my goodness, what in the world? This poor man's going to die in the street. And then Jesus says, but a Samaritan came. At this point, everybody would have been at attention. A who? A Samaritan came. The Jews hated Samaritans and the feeling was mutual. And this goes back centuries at this point. There's a long history of racial conflict, a long history of national animosity and hatred. Jews saw, uh, saw the Samaritans as half-breeds and religious sellouts and a bunch of other things. The worst insult you could say to somebody is call them a Samaritan. It's what they say to Jesus later on when they can't think of anything legitimate to say to him. They just call him names. They call him a Samaritan. It's the ugliest name they could think of. And in the culture, the priests and the Levites are seen as good guys, and the Samaritans are seen as the bad guys. And so uh, the priest is the, the first guy you'd want to see coming down the road, and the last person you'd want to see coming up on a scene like this, if you're on the road bleeding and dying, is this man, a Samaritan. Regardless of any debate about who constitutes one's neighbor, there's no first century Jew who would have included a Samaritan in that circle. Nobody. Nobody would have included him. But look at what he does. We're told that he, that he comes up. He sees him. He has compassion on him. His heart is moved with compassion at this poor man on the side of the road, bleeding and dying. He went to him. That is to say, he got off his donkey and he crosses the street and he gets up close to the man to see what his condition is. 
he bends down onto the ground and he gets near him and he, he bound up his wounds, maybe even ripping up his own clothing to sort of make bandages for the man. He pours oil and wine on his wounds to, to clean and to disinfect and to soothe the man's pain. Seeing the severity of his condition, he, he hoists the man up off the ground and he literally puts him on his donkey, which means he's got to walk now. And he brings him to an end, however far away that was. A place where the man could safely recover and heal. Not only that, it, it appears that he stayed with him all day and took care of him the rest of the day. And overnight, he makes sure that he's okay because we're told the next day he, he pays the innkeeper to Denarii two days full wages, enough for this man to stay there for at least two weeks and recover and recuperate. And that isn't enough. He says to the innkeeper, whatever it takes for this man to get well, however long he needs to be here, put it on my tab and I'll come back and make sure it's taken care of. I mean, that is mercy and compassion to the extreme. And when you set it in contrast to the reaction of the priest and the Levite, you couldn't have more opposite responses in the story. I mean, this man's compassion and his mercy is incredible. It's completely selfless. He pauses his own agenda long enough to care about somebody else. He stops and goes to the man, whatever he was doing, wherever he was going, that immediately goes on the back burner, at least for the rest of the day and into the next day. This suffering man now becomes his sole priority. It's completely selfless. He's countercultural. Samaritans and Jews just did not do this kind of thing for each other. You just didn't do it. It just wasn't done. But this man doesn't care about racial barriers. He doesn't care about any sort of nationalism. All he cares about is that there's a man that's suffering and he can alleviate it. So he crosses all sorts of cultural barriers of pride and hatred. He blows through all of that and he helps the man. His compassion is personal and it's messy. He, he, he gets up close and personal. He doesn't just pawn him off onto somebody else immediately. He gets messy, he cleans his wounds, and he bandages the man. It's completely inconvenient. All of his life is put on hold for a couple days here to take care of this man. And his compassion is sacrificial, isn't it? It cost him. It cost him time. It cost him money. It cost him energy. That's a remarkable example of mercy and compassion. And Jesus ends the story right there. And he looks to the lawyer and he asks question number four, which is this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Okay, man, what do you think? Which of these three proved to be a neighbor? Now, Jesus has now completely turned the man's question upside down, hasn't he? Because the man asked an initial question. And what was his initial question? His initial question is, who is my neighbor? Now, the parable does answer this question, but it doesn't answer that question as the primary issue. The answer to the question of who is my neighbor is anyone, everyone who needs you. That's who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is whoever needs you. It doesn't matter what their race is. It doesn't matter what their citizenship is. It doesn't matter about their religious externals. It doesn't matter about their status. Nobody is excluded from the circle of neighbor. 
That is the answer to that question. But it isn't the main answer, and it isn't the main issue. Jesus' question is not who's my neighbor, and how do we define that so that we can find a loophole? Jesus' question is, in the story, who proved to be a neighbor? It's a far more important question. What does it look like to be neighborly? What does it look like to be a neighbor? What does it look like to live out Leviticus 18, 19 and to love your neighbor as yourself? And his point is this, a neighbor is not something primarily that we are. It's, I mean, it is something primarily that we are. It's not primarily something that we have. And that's where he turns the question on its head. The issue isn't let's debate how small the circle is of what it means to be a neighbor. The question is, how can you be a neighbor? What does it look like for you to live as a neighbor to somebody else? So which one of those men did it? Well, the answer is so obvious, you couldn't miss it, right? But this lawyer hates Samaritans so much that he can't even say it was the Samaritan. He says what? It's the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, great, go and do likewise. Go do likewise. What do we make of all this? What are we meant to learn from all this? Is the, is the application of this? Well, here's what we do. We, we admire the Good Samaritan, and you and I need to launch out into our world this week and try to be Good Samaritans wherever we can be. Go try to find somebody in need and help them. Is that the application? Is that what Jesus is getting at here? Now, is that a bad thing to go find good people in need and help them? It's not. But that isn't the issue that's at stake here. And that is not the right application of the text. The, the application is not, let's admire the good Samaritan and let's go emulate his behavior and be good Samaritans to someone else. And in doing so, make God happy with us so he'll bless us and accept us. If we take the text that way, we're playing right into the lawyer's sort of theological framework, aren't we? Because that's what he's asking, and that's what he's thinking. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? The answer to that question is not go out and be a good Samaritan and please God by your good works and helping people so that he'll accept you. That's not the answer to the question. It'd be a travesty if we took this text and turned it that way. If we do that, we become followers of the lawyer, trying to earn God's favor by doing good. The key is this. What's the difference between the Samaritan and the priest and the Levite? The difference between those two groups of individuals is the Samaritan shows by his behavior that he is a man with a transformed heart. He's a man whose behavior reveals that he knows God and that he walks with God, that he's inherited eternal life. And how do we know that? We know that because everything that he does reveals that about him. His actions show us the fruit of saving faith. He was merciful and he was compassionate, just like his heavenly father. And we don't have time this morning, but if you trek through the Bible and read for yourself how many times it describes God himself as merciful and compassionate. And children inevitably reflect the character of their parents. And God's children behave in a way that reflects his mercy and his compassion. The difference that Jesus is trying to draw out is these men who were very religious and who knew a lot about the Bible and who were looked up to by all the people around them as godly people were outside of the kingdom of God. And the Samaritan who everybody hated showed to everybody by his reaction to this dying man that he had a transformed and redeemed heart and the spirit of God dwelt in him. 
And the mercy and compassion of his father was flowing through him. Jesus exposes the absurdity of debating the definition of a neighbor in this story. Jesus is saying this. If you come across a man on the side of the road who is beaten and bloodied and in the ditch and dying, you don't stop and ask the question, does he qualify as my neighbor? Does he fit the definition of neighbor? Well, let's check out his ID. Let's look at his race and let's look at his ethnicity and let's look at all these factors and, and decide if he, if he meets my qualifications of neighbor because if he doesn't, I'm kicking rocks and I'm out of here. That would be ridiculous. Who he is and where he's from and what his race is is completely irrelevant. The godly man, the godly woman who sees someone in need is moved with compassion and they go to him and they become a neighbor to him regardless of any of those things. The real issue is not what does it take to qualify someone to be my neighbor. The real issue is will I be a neighbor to him, whoever he is, wherever he's from. The story is meant to cause people like that lawyer and people like you and me to ask the question, does my life reflect the mercy and compassion of the Savior I claim? If it doesn't, if there's no evidence in my life that I'm a true neighbor to people in need, that I'm no different than the priest or the Levite or the lawyer. I'm somebody who's externally religious. I'm somebody who's biblically educated. I'm thought of by onlookers as spiritual, but I'm outside the kingdom of God. In James' short epistle, he gets at the same issue. In chapter 2, verse 14 and following, he says this, What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother and sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works. And James says, I will show you my faith by my works. It's the same scenario that James paints, isn't it? The issue isn't, can I work my way into eternal life? That wasn't the issue in James. That isn't the issue in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The real issue is this, if my faith is genuine and it's true and it's real, then it's going to flesh out in the way that I behave, in the way that I act in the world, and in the way that I respond to people who are suffering. And if there's something within me that says I can claim faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be a godly individual and yet see somebody humanly suffering and wave to them from a distance and say, be warm and well-filled, hope you get some clothes and food, and beat it to the restaurant, and there's something deficient about my faith that isn't real. It can't save. My lack of being a neighbor to the person in need shows that I don't have the 
the love of Christ and the mercy of Christ and the compassion of Christ wrought in my soul by the Spirit of God because I haven't been redeemed. The question isn't who qualifies to be my neighbor. The question is, who am I? Is my actions toward those who are neighbor, who are neighbors to me, which is everybody who I come across, does that reveal that I truly have the mercy and compassion of the God that I claim? If not, I'm a religious person who has all the external stuff polished up real nice, but I won't inherit the kingdom of God or eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, there's so much to unpack within this particular text. It isn't incidental that this man was a Samaritan. You could have chosen anyone. His race matters. His ethnicity and national heritage matters. You do indeed want to show us that those things are artificial constructs in some ways, at least as far as Christians go, as far as how we're to engage people. Those things shouldn't matter. But what you really want is for us to look this morning at our own selves and our own hearts and ask the question, who do we most identify in with the story? The priest and the Levite or that Samaritan? What you really want us to reflect on is not who qualifies for our time and attention and love and compassion, but what you really want us to reflect on is when we see people who are in need and who are suffering, how do we respond? Because it reveals a lot about what's going on in our hearts. Because if we truly know you, the Spirit of God in us moves us toward those who are hurting. And your compassion and your mercy flow through us. It's a part of your sanctifying work in our lives. And if that's wholly absent, like it was from that priest and that Levite, it doesn't matter what we do on the outside religiously. The only conclusion is we're outside of your kingdom. Humble us, God, before you. Help us to make sure that we're not like this Pharisee or Sadducee or scribe, Levite, or priest, religious on the outside, but dead on the inside. Draw us to yourself, Lord Jesus. Humble us before your high standard of perfect righteousness. Remind us that we could never reach it, no matter how hard we tried, that our only hope is to confess our sin, to repent and turn from it, to bow before you and embrace you as our Lord and Savior that your perfect righteousness might be imputed to us in our sin and failure nailed to your cross, that your spirit might come and indwell us and make us like you so that when we live in a lost world and we obey your law to the best of our ability, we're set apart from all the unlawlessness around us and marked off as your children because we reflect your mercy and your compassion in a world full, full of hate and bitterness and anger. 
May that be the reality of all of our lives, Lord. May we all inherit eternal life because we know you, Lord Jesus. We pray. Amen.